Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you want to know about game studies, or at least the things that we've read. I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. How are you today, Michael? I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm here. I'm ready to I'm ready to to cast. Mmm, that the classic verb. Mm-hmm. Casted. Mm-hmm. Uh appropriate for fly fishing and pod. <laughs> The, uh, you know, there was a while we were doing the show for two years. There, there was a while when we would at the beginning say what we were all about and then we quit doing that. Uh, I think we should Mm -hmm. probably bring that back. So, uh, just in case you've never listened to the show before, this is all about us reading game studies books. And then hopefully maybe we're unsuccessful sometimes. I don't know, but hopefully the desire is to make them accessible to you, whether you're a game studies uh, academic who doesn't have time to read the book or you're looking for someone else to, to kind of be in conversation with about it, or if you're a game developer or designer, if you're just someone who's interested in finding out what's going on in game studies, we are delving into both the, the canon of game studies and into the right now, the brand new. And this is a, in the world of academic books, the, the book we're talking about today, brand new. Mm-hmm. Very new. Very new as far as academic books are concerned, when uh, if you just, if you don't know this, if you're not an academic, a book that's been published in the last 10 years, still pretty new. Yeah, I would say it's, yeah, it's, it's probably, it is not unusual for an academic monograph to take something like five years to produce, and then it will have a shelf life of about another five to eight to 10 years, depending on, you know, field and subject and so on. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is Game Studies, which immediately obliterates its past at every opportunity <laughs> and forgets the things that it's done. So uh, and so partially, I say that kind of jokingly, but kind of not. Uh, game Studies is a big and wide and diffuse field. And I think we found over the course of doing the show for a while that it's interesting what pieces of Game Studies kind of stick around and what pieces kind of get forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, in film studies, where which is kind of, you know, where where I have maybe my strongest secondary uh, concern or in science fiction studies where I have a a pretty strong secondary concern Uh, in those fields, that's not necessarily the case. So, so game studies is a little bit unique in that regard, but that's the point of the show. That's what we're into. That's what we're all about here is uh, hopefully uh, bringing together some ideas in game studies and some books in game studies that you might be interested in and learning a little bit more about Michael, what are we talking about on this episode? Uh, Today we are talking about, on Video Games, The Visual Politics of Race, Gender, and Space by Soraya Murray. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2018 from, from mm-hmm. Ivy Taurus. And uh, something I, I think is important to say at the beginning, this is unfortunate because I don't like having to say this, but this is the reality of academic books. It's prohibitively expensive to read this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, Ivy Taurus is not a... Is not a um, like not a publisher that has a, a strong like trade uh demographic right people buying people like when we, when we talk about like trade books uh like not just someone wandering through a bookstore picking up this copy of on video games and buying it that's not where this book is showing up yeah it is it is uh published at a price point built for libraries, basically. Yes. And so you're looking at $100 plus uh, for a physical copy of the book, and I think $60 for an, an e-reader copy. Is that correct? Uh, so you can get, you can get a, uh, a a watermarked PDF copy of this book for $86 right now. Uh, and that's and on sale? Can, and that's on sale. Uh, 
and you can get a hardcover for $108. So I will say just straight up, it's prohibitively expensive. Um, I would strongly encourage you to try to get it through a library or some other means um, rather than, you know, kind of manually buying this book yourself. Uh, think about becoming a community member of your local academic library if you have a university near you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's a good good way of uh, getting access to more expensive books that are hard to get. So I, I want to say that up front so people are not like, oh, this book sounds really rad. I'm going to go buy my $30 paperback. That That is not really a, a live option here. Um, but uh, yeah, do, Michael, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Soraya Murray? Uh, Sure thing. So Murray is assistant professor in the film and digital media department at the University of California, Santa Cruz, uh, and she holds a PhD in art history and visual studies from Cornell University and also an MFA in studio art from the University of California, Irvine. And she has um, published, this is her, I think, only book, uh, but she's published a few essays, um, some of which come out of material in this book and others... uh, I think are uh, you know more recent research, but topics tend to include uh, military representation in video games, or like you know military games, uh, and also kind of uh, post-colonial. I have no idea how I just said that. Post-colonial perspectives uh, on video games. Postal colonial. Yeah, postal colonial. Mm-hmm. Who remembers that video game? Uh, <laughs> And can we talk about the cover? We should talk about We can the talk cover. about the cover, yeah. I think I think that's the first thing you said to me about this book when we were talk, talking about doing it. You were like, oh, this cover. <laughs> it's like, very rarely is the is the cover of an academic book um, something that you just, like, absolutely need to talk about. But quite frankly, the cover of this book, and uh, if you're listening, you can, you can pause the podcast to look this up and, and double check and make sure I'm not lying to you. The cover of this book, and this is, I'm not, I'm not, trying to dunk on the cover of this book to be clear i think it rules uh it is it is a shit post (laughs) like it's this uh and i i was looking through the the front matter trying to see like where these like where this image was sourced from but i i couldn't find anything it's like this render like a, a cg 3d uh render of like a a young boy's face like a young blonde white boy but um it's very like grotesque and his uh features aren't proportionate and he has this kind of like weird like lidded eyed uh sort of insolent expression on his face and it's just like this head floating in a in a blue field right it's a very strange and, and striking cover yeah, he's got a bowl cut, which like doesn't help him out at, at yeah. all, right? You know, that's it's it's really going for him, and uh, it reminds me a whole lot. There's, um, I can't believe I am uh, blanking on the title of the book, but uh, Pazi Valiaho's book. I I'm blanking on the title, but uh, his book has a chapter in it about this art piece that is photographs of children playing video games. And mm-hmm. they're all of this. They're all children with this expression. <laughs> it's all children <laughs> with this, like you know, they they appear to be experiencing a flow state, right? They're like kind of zoning uh-huh. out a little bit. They're like intensely focused, and so they're not managing their facial expression at all. Um, I'm mm-hmm. sure I look like this all the time. I'm sure I have the most like distressing uh, facial expression when I'm like playing rock band. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but yeah, it's very similar aesthetically. I can't. Uh, people should check that book out. It's really good. I think we'll probably do it on the show at the show at some point because uh, hey, it's it's really quite neat. Uh, it's about like biopolitics and, and visuality. 
in oh, games neat. to a certain extent. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, but uh, but yeah, yeah, it's it's a unique cover. Uh, it's really eye catching. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, other other additional stuff here at the top. Any any kind of big broad stuff you want to talk about before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of the actual chapters? I I don't think so. I think we've kind of uh, set this up pretty well. This is the uh, fastest time to introduction in human history, or in <laughs> in the uh, history of the show, the human history of the show. Um, introduction of the book is called "Is the Culture in Game Culture the Culture of Cultural Studies." You want to run through that just one more time. Is the culture in game culture the culture of cultural studies? You, you got that, With, listener? Listener at home. Mm-hmm. It's a real, uh, okay. it's a real tongue twister of a, of a title for an introduction, right? But uh, yeah, it, when we say the word, you know, this is me rephrasing it. When we say the word game culture, do we mean the same thing as the culture when we say cultural studies? Is that the same kind of thing? And so. The introduction of this book is, uh, and correct me if you think this is wrong, Michael, but it is both a uh, interrogation of what it means to talk about video games as like a cultural object, and it's an implicit defense of the methods of cultural studies and then the methods of visual cultural studies or visual culture studies uh, that kind of get developed out of cultural studies in the early 1990s. Right. Uh, I, I think you're totally correct. Uh, and yeah, even though even though this introduction title is a little strange, it does set us up for all of the things that are at play here. Namely, what of all books of game studies uh, that we can talk about, uh, what is one of the sort of distinctive features of this one? And it is that it is taking a cultural studies approach to looking at video games. Cultural studies is a particular methodology with a particular history. And it's not just uh, cultural studies, in fact, but visual cultural studies, which is an outgrowth of the earlier cultural studies. This is being turned back around onto video games, which, uh, as this introduction lays out, uh, have not been looked at by cultural or visual cultural studies uh, very extensively, and there are some reasons that are supposed for that and that we'll talk about. Um, but to kind of get us started then, Cameron, what the heck is cultural studies? <laughs> no! Uh, uh, cultural studies uh, is, a, is a paradigm, is a, is a method, I, I think we could say mm-hmm. broadly is a, is, a, is a method of approach or, or a, uh, a way of it's a heuristic, right? So so heuristic, if you're not familiar with the term, kind of means uh, a way of asking questions or a way of framing. Um, but it, it is a heuristic for understanding cultural objects. So, for example, we could say that if you read Marx, Marx really doesn't care all that much about the production of uh, culture around the commodity or the value form or anything like that. He thinks it's important because ultimately it ends up being uh, important for the kind of psychic life of society. But ultimately he doesn't think that culture is at the, the heart of the engine that produces society in a broad sense. Um, the, the big innovation of cultural studies coming out of the 1960s and 1970s is uh, that the cultural productions of a society are just as important as any other thing that they make and that you can look at culture and you can analyze culture um, in order to kind of both look at how power relations work and in order to directly intervene in those power relations. Um, Mm -hmm. So, for example, a, a lot of things that we just kind of implicitly believe now 
uh, come out of cultural studies and they kind of come out of the Frankfurt School too earlier, which is, you know, the beginning of the 1930s. It's a group of European academics or, or pseudo-academics or semi-academics. They, they didn't have academic positions for a very, very long time. They were kind of mobile and, and working both in industry and for governments and all kinds of things like that. But uh, their big move was to say, okay, if we take uh, ideas from Freud, this is the Frankfurt School, if we take ideas from Freud and we take ideas from Marx, how do we then figure out how culture works? Cultural studies is doing something similar to that, but based on this kind of previous paradigm or in response to this previous paradigm. And they are a lot more systematic about it. Um, and that comes from the emergence of cultural studies specifically in the UK and coming out of the UK system. So you kind of get this systematization that, that is emblematic, I would say, of the United Kingdom and particularly like the English and uh, uh, their mode of doing and, and thinking philosophically, theoretically, things like that, as well as the politics and the philosophical backing that come out of the Marxist and the uh, lightly the psychoanalytic tradition. So cultural studies is a lot of things running into one another in order to create an analytic for talking about the relationship between um, people and industry. And in, in, in industry, I mean the cultural industries. Um, it's a way of talking about what it means for me to sit in front of a television and look at TV and then have some sort of relationship with that. Um, it's a way of looking at media industrial analysis, right? What is the relationship between the state, uh, media industries, and then the individual or the consumer of that or the expected audience? How do those things triangulate together? So cultural studies is, is the word we give to the, you know, forgive the, um, uh, the silliness here, but it's the study of culture, but with a very particular pr uh, uh, um philosophical and uh, conceptual backing to it. It has a politics that's built into it. Um, right. And that, that particularly gets developed here in the book or talked about in two different kind of modes or three different figures, uh, one of which is Raymond Williams and, one, and the other of which is Stuart Hall. And these two are kind of the big names in cultural studies that still kind of uh, echo through our system today. Very good. Uh, so the question then posed by the introduction, uh, is the culture in game culture, the culture of cultural studies, uh, can be rephrased as when we say the, fr when we say games culture or game culture, because I think, you know, this is a thing that that's a thing we still say. And it's a thing that we, we say, what is, what is going on in games culture right now? Uh, is the culture of games culture a the same when we say that are we invoking the same type of culture as cultural studies uh is that question um and of course the the book's argument is that yes they they are that the that there is a kind of distinction uh that is commonly made in the academy uh between the culture of cultural studies and then games culture uh that i think is even now, like, starting to change, right? Her has already changed so much, was already changing uh, when this book was published. Um, but Murray digs into the, the history of game studies as a field, how it emerges in the academy, and how cultural studies proper tends to not talk about video games um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of which is the idea that somehow, even though cultural studies, as, as it comes about, is like the one example, for instance, that um, 
Murray brings in from Williams is when he's talking about watching TV police procedurals. Am I right? Was mm-hmm. that Williams or was that Hall? Uh, I think that might be Hall where he's talking about Hill Street. That's Williams. Hall. Yeah, that's it. Yes, it's Hall. Um, so for instance, uh, Stuart Hall is going to watch, uh, Hill Street Blues and Miami Vice, uh, and he is an academic, a thinker, um, and he's going to have all of these thoughts about, uh, what is, what is the cultural work that Miami Vice or Hill Street Blues is doing, right? What is, what is the cultural work of this object? Um, another way of thinking about this actually, because I come, uh, you know, from a, I'm a Shakespearean, I come out of that background, uh, Cultural studies, when it gets to Shakespeare studies in the 80s, produces a lot of really interesting scholarship on things like uh, the property laws in Stratford-on-Avon and how you get all of these restaurants named like Othello's or a a jewelry store named Amelia's uh, in the way that uh, culture, what was previously thought of as like high culture... um, actually is imbricated in a lot of, like, mass culture or what was formerly thought of as low culture. Uh, so even though this is ostensibly what uh, cultural studies is supposed to do, is supposed to look at not just uh, high culture in the, in, in the sense of what the best of what has been thought and said, as it used to be put, um, not just looking at that, but looking at how that stuff operates sort of in, in all potential cultural zones— even though this is how cultural studies get set up, video games kind of get ignored um, because they're seen as sort of like uh, frivolous children's toys for a large part of the you know eighties and nineties. Yeah, and I don't I don't know enough about the cultural studies tradition at that time to to like weigh in one way or the other here, right? I I can say that I don't think. You know, and I, I took several courses in graduate school around cultural studies. Shout, shout out to Ted Friedman. Uh, shout out to Ethan Tussie. <laughs> people <laughs> I took uh, cultural studies courses with. So if I get any of this wrong, it's their fault. It's the fault of the people who trained me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but as far as I can remember, there's not there. I never read anything. Uh, and even doing, you know, research for seminar papers for those courses, I never read anything from that time period that is specifically about games or video games although there is some stuff about play which is something that we've returned to over and over across the show that there is a history you know from between the 1950s and the early 2000s there's a kind of a weird shadow history going on with the history of play that just doesn't make its way into talking about games specifically so um, i think maybe this is another kind of demonstration of that right that that if there was talk about games it was being kind of sublimated and put into a different thing which is kind of weird, right? Because game stu- or not game studies, but cultural studies, the, the whole thing is talking about things that human beings are just doing in their general time. I mean, Raymond Williams, like you said, Michael, uh, Raymond Williams' whole, not his whole thing, but the thing that he becomes very famous for in a broad sense in cultural studies is his study of television, uh, you know, the flow mm-hmm. model. Weirdly enough, a very a different flow model. That's that's something that came up uh, in some of the comments on our episode on flow that you know we got on Twitter. People are like, "Wow, I've only heard of flow through Raymond Williams," and I had to be like, "Oh, wait, 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 hold on, sorry, different flow, <laughs> like a, a mm-hmm. completely different theory of flow." Uh, just happens to be the same thing. But you know, Raymond Williams wrote on literature quite often, Marxism and literature. He wrote quite often on science fiction. One of the earliest uh, scholars of science fiction. Um, so did all kinds of stuff. But I think is kind of you know, big, broad, if you were going to put Raymond Williams on a, on a billboard, it would be cultural studies and, and you know, Marxism and, um, and TV in particular. 
Um, but uh, the, the, the thing that happens in this book to kind of establish these things too is that if, it, if games have been um, uh, excluded from the history of cultural studies or if they just haven't been an object that cultural studies cares a lot about, which I think is more, more the case here, um, if they haven't been in, the, in the, the kind of limelight of the field, uh, then why might that be? And, and what do these methods look like when they run into it? Um, and so we get an evocation of uh, basically both Raymond Williams and Stuart Hall to say, look, if you take the, you know, the big methods that we get out of both of these figures and just kind of uh, quickly apply them to games, it's clear that games work in these systems, right? So we get Stuart Hall's encoding, decoding, very famous thing, uh, which is basically mm-hmm. about meaning and power in media. So uh, there are uh, moments in media cr- uh, production in which there is an invocation of meaning and the production of meaning and the encoding of medium uh, and of, of power in a medium. Uh, and thoughts and ideologies and ways of understanding the world. And then every single person in their interaction with that is going to come away with a different uh, kind of perspective on it. Um, And so she has a quote on page six uh, that's kind of like, if we imagine Stuart Hall's encoding decoding to be true, then how does that work with games? She says, quote, it is not hard to imagine that players bring a great deal to games and their subject positions, histories and cultural contexts, as well as innumerable other factors shape what they gather from their played experiences. So she's saying in the same way that someone might watch television, um, you know, they might watch Hill Street Blues and take a particular perspective from that. Um, you can play a game and take a particular perspective of that. You know, what an example that gets used or got used in classrooms for a while. And one of the ways that this was taught to me is, um, and certainly when I experienced in my life, I mean, this is a real thing. Uh, is the TV show Cops now, which, which has now been canceled? Uh, I think, mm-hmm. thankfully, uh, has been canceled. Yeah. But grew up watching Cops, watch Cops all the time, and uh, there is this uh, on, on the 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 show is produced from the perspective of like the, the cops. Cops have a hard time doing stuff. Uh, their life is very stressful. We're taking you along for the ride, so you understand what it really is like. Right? Yes. Um, that's the ideology of the thing. This job is hard. Now you're going to get some stuff. Uh, watching that as a kid, uh, our entire perspective uh, of that was both as comedy uh, in the sense of like it is uh, exploitative, right, uh, of people who are on the uh, bad end of the justice system, wholly from that. And it's mm-hmm. edited in such a way as to make those people buffoonish, uh, things like that. Uh, it's, it's a truly awful TV show and it was really especially awful in the 90s. But then on the other side, uh, a strong alignment with the people who are running away from the police. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that that show that, you know, in my household, that show was uh, embraced and experienced from the perspective of uh, look at these people trying to get one over on the cops. Good for them. Um, mm-hmm. And that that so that that's kind of a good example, I think, of like what the intended ideological content is and what the ide- ide- ideological content that uh, my family kind of absorbed from it. Um, and our subject positions, right, are, are different. I imagine that someone who uh, is in the family with a police officer, they would have a uh, much more coherent experience or, or uh, an experience that is more aligned with the initial subject position of the TV show. Right. So uh, what does this mean then for, for video games? Why isn't it the case that video games have uh, been studied under this rubric? Um and there's an interesting thesis here, I think, uh, that 
Murray puts forth, which is namely that in in sort of the turn toward uh, the neoliberal academy in the 80s and 90s, uh, various departments, um, particularly humanities departments, become very hard pressed to defend their objects of study. And this is something that I think we've probably talked about on this show before. Uh, I can't think of specific episodes, but I know we've talked about like the cultural wars of the 90s, uh, mm-hmm. where uh, people are like the uh, right wing politicians and pundits are talking about how, again, Shakespeare, um, like they're ruining Shakespeare by making kids learn about feminism or ecology or like watching productions of Shakespeare that suggest that Romeo and Juliet is not actually a love story, that it's actually kind of satirical or ironic or something like that. Um, when when there is this concerted campaign from the right to undercut uh, the, the very sort of process of academic study, um, the academy has to really hunker down and focus on things that can be defended. And because video games are seen as uh, simply toys, right? Uh, uh, Sort of amusements, novelties, uh, and just general pastimes, even though cultural studies is going to look at something like Hill Street Blues or cops, things that are comparatively when, when looked at, uh, you know, aside, uh, beside literature, um, those things still, I think, uh, from a, from a 90s perspective, talking about television felt more defensible than talking about uh, video games, especially if you are up for tenure or you need to write a grant proposal and, and ensure that, you know, money isn't going to, to be frittered away or something like that. Uh, so there's this. Uh, and then Murray also suggests that because of this turn away from video games uh, necessitated by various systemic pressures early on, Game studies that come as it comes to exist in this time um, is similarly uninterested in the more uh, maybe divisive uh, tendencies of cultural studies or not divisive, but controversial, right? Because uh, the academy is kind of encouraged to turn away from identity politics or uh, conversations around multiculturalism or things like that. Um Game studies then develops, and it develops as a kind of universalist uh, tendency, right? And we've we've read some of these books, uh, uh, the the ludologists of of the '90s, where things are all about like games are understood primarily, first and foremost, as systems, and the people who interact with games aren't that important. What is important is what is what is a game? What are its systems? How do those systems work? Uh, and there's a, an implicit assumption that no matter who you are, when you play a game, uh, you are interacting with it in the same way as just about anyone else. Uh, and cultural studies, of course, is going to say no, uh, as you've just given uh, with that example from cops, right? Each person is going to decode the meaning of a cultural object in a unique way based on their circumstances in life. Yeah, the it doesn't get invoked here, I don't think, but it, a little bit later in the book, in order in another way that she makes this point, uh, she's talking about Espen Arthas kind of quote that Lara Croft's body doesn't matter, right? Uh, the the Arthas argument is that we don't see that fundamentally we are looking at the world through uh, Lara Croft. We are not looking at Lara Croft, and so in seeing the world like Lara Croft, it doesn't matter, you know, if she's highly sexualized, not sexualized, anything like that. Uh, because fundamentally, for Arseth, that's beside the point. Um, right, precisely. And, and, and so that's kind of the friction here, is is that 
if it's just the system and the representations don't matter, that, that's well and good for Espinosa's ability to decode what's going on there. But uh, as many women have pointed out who have, who have played Tomb Raider, and there's, you know, I, 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 there, there's a long trajectory, and she kind of works through this in when she talks about uh, Laura Croft uh, in the book later, but there's a long trajectory of people analyzing that um, that, the, that game and the representation in there and things like that. And I think a lot of the time, I think people in game studies and people around game culture are kind of tired to that argument or they, they kind of wish that we would move on to a separate thing. I've heard that from many people many different times. I've seen people tweet about it, things like that. But I think that this is a good kind of uh, context for what's at stake in that argument. And what's at stake in that argument is... Um, when a person has a particular kind of friction with the game that they're playing, should that matter or not? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Arthas' implicit answer to that is no. Like, you know, it, that, that really shouldn't because it doesn't, it should not be getting, or, or it, it, for him, it does not get in the way of other kinds of analyses. Uh, but for some people, it obviously does. And so I, I think it still is kind of a productive uh, fulcrum right a productive kind of wedge for thinking about how do we how do we do game studies right like how do we think about what what game studies is and i agree with you i think this is a really unique argument of getting there that the fragmentation of the university and the kind of cultural battle that's happening on kind of that structural or kind of of undergirding level determines the kind of of way that games can get folded into academic analysis and i've never really seen this before either so um I, I was really appreciative of that right uh it's 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 an interesting way of approaching uh like the the division in game studies between ludology and narratology or however whichever terms we want to assign in this particular binary um and one of the things that murray points out is she is not interested in keeping that binary separate because she sees she sees these types of arguments as uh, overall concerned with kind of purity. Um, she she invokes Arseth here again, uh, specifically his his claim where he talks about game studies is in danger of being quote unquote colonized uh, by other disciplines. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, there's the the claim that we need to talk about games as as unique as sort of uh, their own thing. Uh, we should develop new methods for them, um, and uh, Murray finds this troubling because she sees games as ipso facto uh, always already. Uh, and this is a quote uh, from page like 23: intersectional, hybrid, errant, uh, and post disciplinary. Uh, that is to say, games. Uh, are already at the intersect games by their very nature right as a medium are at the intersection of both system and representation mm -hmm. yeah so yeah the, and that you need and this is something i think that we've found across i think most of the books that we've liked the most in this uh you know just just to put it kind of bluntly that way the, the books that we have found most engaging i think the uh have been books that acknowledge that you need a big toolbox to talk about games Mm -hmm. I was going to say, and then the other point that she makes is that uh, when you don't include uh, studies of identity or concerns of multiculturalism within your discussion of a video game, uh, that is to say, this this seemingly universalist formalism um, in, it, in itself becomes a type of identity politics, right? It's just an identity politics that's sublimated because there are assumptions being made about who is playing the game, what they're doing, uh, why they're doing it, and so on. And she connects this uh, quite explicitly to Gamergate. 
uh, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, she she argues is is was a you know harassment campaign and movement founded on uh, a similar essentialism about who is playing games and why they're playing games and why you should play games. Uh, and so that is uh, kind of, you know, one of the directions in which uh, this, this sort of purely uh, formal, like emptied of of uh, character or, or individual uh, criticism kind of leads, uh, she alleges. Yeah, absolutely. And that that kind of hinges the, the way that she gets there or the way that she uh, makes that operative and kind of turns that into a method here is by saying that games are ultimately playable representations, right? So Mm -hmm. on 29, she says, um, quote, representation is in fact a front line of power relations and domination within particular spheres of influence. And this is no less true of games than other forms of mass culture and their attendant industries. This is a problem that I'll revisit throughout this book in relationship to particular, or in relation to particular games. And I will mm-hmm. be honest that when I read through the introduction, I was left a little bit confused about like how this actually works. Uh, and I, and I just to preview kind of where I get at the end, I'm still actually quite confused about the mechanism of how representation works and the kind of core of the relationship between representation and politics. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that that is pulled out enough or, or made explicit enough for me, but you know, as a notorious, uh, uh, person who needs things made explicit for me <laughs> i just I, I just i need those connected pieces very very important for me um ultimately i don't think that makes or breaks the book in any way i just i i personally would like a lot more granularity on that issue but what she's saying here right is that if your your um approach to video games begins from the the question of representation doesn't matter or representation is a secondary concern to something something else then ultimately you are letting go of your ability to address certain power relations as represented in the video game space. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that's a big deal because she says, in fact, this is on 25, she says that games are playable representations. She gets there through kind of uh, stapling together uh, Alexander Galloway's work of games as actions and then Adrian Shaw's work on um, uh, games and representation in politics, right? So there's a couple pages here where she really digs into that. But the kind of ultimate thing here is that if games are playable representations and representation is the front line of power relations, then in fact, you are playing on the front line of power relations in every moment of gameplay. Um, and I think that's a big, I think this is being made more explicit here than maybe anywhere else that we've seen a similar kind of argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if I 100% agree with that. I just wrote a big piece for bullet points where I kind of, uh, work through the, uh, David Marriott, who is in, and, and several other scholars who are kind of talking about the difference between representation and kind of other formal mechanisms of, of inclusion and disinclusion, but, or, or exclusion, not disinclusion. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but I think ultimately this is true. I mean, I, I think if you are buying into a representational paradigm, then this is a hundred percent factually correct. Um, and that then leaves us with the rest of the book, which are chapters about playable representations and what kind of power they are engaged in. And that first chapter is about, uh, fittingly enough, like specifically the, a character, 
a character as representation, which I think is probably how in in the popular discourse in the vernacular on Twitter, when people are talking about representation, uh, they're often talking about particular characters of particular identity categories. Um, and we're going to get to some different places by the end of this book, but that's where we start uh, in chapter one, talking about Assassin's Creed 3 liberation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you're when you say that, right, you know, the 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 conversations people should be thinking of if you're not on Twitter or things like that, uh, perish the thought to not be on Twitter. But uh, <laughs> if you're not, then then it's like um, uh, we need better representation in the sense that all video game protagonists don't need to be bald white guys with guns. Right. right. We should have and, various different yeah. people with guns. I mean, and liberation is is a great choice for for talking about that because uh the main character of that game is a like black woman and yeah. uh, and like the i think up until that point she, the first like woman protagonist of the series and i'm not sure i i didn't i don't play much of the assassin's creed games mm -hmm. anyway a real uh sort of step out of the normal video game protagonist formula in in liberation um yeah, yeah. Uh, the Altair from the the first game is uh, you know from modern day Syria. So you know you, we can, I think we could have a, a robust yeah. discussion about uh, the racial identity of Altair uh, existing before the idea of race, mm -hmm. <laughs> like historically. Um, and uh, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. So and and I we, say a black woman, but that actually gets brought up here too, or in the sense of she is a biracial woman. And right. there, there's kind of a whole kind of mechanism here in the chapter we probably won't get deeply into, um, but but that that there's there's an open question about how that racial uh, uh, racial identity works here too. Mm -hmm. um, but but the reason that um, that Murray is writing about this, and the reason that a lot of people have written about, I would say that as far as Assassin's Creed games go, a lot of people have written about Liberation, and not as many people have written about any of the other games. <laughs> um, but, but the, the kind of core reason, which makes a lot of sense, it's, it's, uh, out of the norm for the, for the series, number one, uh, and two, there is a set of, of, uh, mechanics in the game that has Aveline, the, the protagonist, she takes on three different identity categories, like as a game mechanic. So mm -hmm. she takes on the position of the assassin when she's doing assassination stuff. She takes on the position of the slave in where she's kind of doing, um, but it's not investigation. It's like when you go in somewhere and no one infiltration. knows you're there. Infiltration. There we go. Ask me about cultural studies. I got it all day long. Ask me the difference, but ask me to come up with the word infiltration. And I just like <laughs> brain shuts down. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, infiltration missions and things where she needs to go somewhere and interact with people kind of uh, secretly or below uh, visibility. And I think there's a whole lot that we could dig in there. Um, she takes on this kind of role of the slave. And then uh, there's the position of the lady, uh, which is her kind of high society uh, position where she does other types of like intrigue and conversation and things like that. Um, and so people find that mechanical version, they find that very intriguing, that these identity positions are turned into a game mechanic. Right. And this is um, a sort of outgrowth of... So Assassin's Creed games have always had sort of mechanics where you can like disguise yourself or hide yourself. Um, I, I have played the first game and uh, this meant things like uh, because you're a guy wearing a long white robe, uh, you could like buddy up to some monks who were also wearing long white robes and the, the guards who were looking for you wouldn't notice you or something like mm -hmm. that. 
Um, yep. and, and so Eveline, this character, has uh, three different versions of this that work in three different contexts. And also just like if you haven't played the game or haven't heard of it, it helps to know that it takes place in like mid 19th century New Orleans. Um, I think earlier than that, but yes, it, earlier it takes than that, pla- yeah. place in uh, in in a time period of that <laughs> a time period okay it takes place in a time it uh set between 1765 and 1777 okay so it's even earlier. so quite yeah. a bit earlier um yeah <laughs> but but yeah in in new orleans um in in america <laughs> new orleans america you know the place yes uh and so <laughs> the reason that this is uh useful for uh the entire argument of the book, right, is because uh, the the identity of the character is is literally made into a game mechanic, and different aspects of her identity allow her to accomplish different types of work in the in the culture that she inhabits, which of course is a an imagined representation of a historical uh, point in in you know U.S. or like uh, Southern culture or something like that. Um, but that is, you know, why why this entire first chapter is is all about uh, Abilene. Mm-hmm. And the, there's a quote on 60, a little ways into the chapter, where she says, rather than uh, focusing on the need for corrective representations of socially defined minorities in games, I'm interested in how a politics of identity speaks to the complex renegotiations at work in a game such as Liberation. And so by that, she's not interested in like writing an essay about why Aveline is good or bad as a uh, biracial woman, uh, you know, representation. She's not interested in, in writing that piece. She's interested in, you know, and for making a case for why, uh, you know, there need to be more um, biracial women who are protagonists in games. Although I think she would say that, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Um, she's, that's not what this chapter is about. This chapter is actually about how those mechanics that you just talked about, Michael, how those things talk to, uh, the negotiation of power in this world and what it, what it tells us then, right? If, if the game representation, if the game world that we're playing in, if it stands in or is in conversation with real world power relations, which we got in the first chapter, which the method kind of assumes here, if that is the case, then what does it mean to, to shift from these positions in the game, uh, what does that mean for the real world? And what does that mean for what we take from, from the game? Um, and a couple of different ways that this shakes out that I picked up, and Michael, you can tell me you know, if there are any that, that you thought were um, beyond this, one of, one of which is Edward Said's uh, Orientalism argument. Um, mm-hmm. So the idea that there are, uh, there's a, an implicit and explicit othering that is part of the kind of Assassin's Creed universe uh, in, in a broad mm-hmm. sense. That fundamentally holds other racial identities uh, at a distance um, and ultimately doesn't really allow us to critique them or to think through how they work um, in a robust way. Is that a, is that a fair way of, of, of summarizing what she says about Orientalism here? Yes. Uh, and I think that is uh, that's another important point about this chapter, which I don't think we read the entire title. Uh, it is Poetics of Form and mm. Politics of Identity or Games as Cultural Palimpsests. And the yeah. key word here is palimpsests. Uh, when you talk about how uh, Murray is not interested in being like, is is Aveline good representation, right? Is this uh, like, you know, uh, fulfilling the mandate for whatever we think representation has to do? 
Um, that's not her question because uh, games for her are going to be palimpsests, which is, of course, uh, the word used for like ancient manuscripts where uh, the right, like we didn't have paper. Uh, things were written usually on parchment, uh, things produced from animal skin. Uh, so in, say, medieval Europe, uh, if you wanted to write a letter, you were a monk in a, in a monastery and you needed to write a letter to uh, another monk in another monastery. You might take an old piece of parchment uh, that already had something written on it and scrape it down and write a new letter and send that off. Or, you know, you need to make a manuscript. You're going to take an old book out of the library that no one cares about. You're going to scrape down the, the surface of the pages, uh, make something new on that, and then that's going to be what goes back into the library. And it turns out you can, uh, with certain types of imaging techniques, you can see on these uh manuscripts in the present day not only what is written on them but what was behind them the the way that the ink set into the material for instance right can be evidenced with certain types of light and so on and so forth so games are like this for murray in that uh you know you well the the orientalism example is is a good one because that is something that comes from the beginning of this series where where it's your your Altair, it's in it's set during the Crusades, uh, in like the twelve hundreds or maybe eleven hundreds, I don't remember. Um, but uh, the series Assassin's Creed is founded upon a type of adventure narrative that, at its core, has a lot of Orientalist assumptions about what the world is, about how it works, about what you're going to be doing in this world. Uh, and so even though uh this particular Assassin's Creed game is not set anywhere near uh, those regions or in those time periods. Uh, it carries forward a lot of the like swashbuckling assumptions. So, you know, in, in terms of like good representation, nah, this this game is still going to be kind of Orientalist sort of simplified in, in the way that it approaches culture. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it and that we shouldn't see like what work is identity doing here or mechanics and identity and things like that. Yeah. And so maybe this is, we've talked about this before on the show, uh, but you know, a difference between how you characterize is like the Twitter use of the word representation, right? Or like our common use, which is, uh, is someone represented? Is someone apparent, you know, coming into visuality in a work and then there's the other kind of, uh, I guess, more philosophical notion of representation, meaning a, a, a literal picture of a world. Um, so a recreation of uh, a, a world state or a set of politics or something like that in a media object. Um, so when we say that, like, you know, there there is uh, re representation in the sense of, like, who is in the thing. And then there is representation in the sense of the thing itself the you know the the whole image so imagine this is going to come up again later but imagine like disney world as a representation of america um you know mm -hmm. it has all these different pieces to it. it it's this kind of like self-enclosed own little thing and it has all these weird assumptions built into it some of which it inherits and some of which are unique to it um and you can analyze that representation as standing in for something else um, and so here, right, the representation of the world that exists in the Assassin's Creed kind of species of games, for, for, for lack of a better word for that, that carries a lot of values in it. And, and mm -hmm. in this case, right, they're raced, gendered, things like that. And then the, the other sort of point that I just wanted to 
mark here is on page 69. I think this is super interesting. Also, it's page 69. Um, nice. But uh, yeah. Uh, so Murray is talking about how basically the story to Assassin's Creed Liberation um, is not, you know, world shattering right it's not uh, it's actually deeply stereotypical in a lot of ways it had like the the sort of like big plot uh orbits around a slave vendetta which is like a very common trope in kind of melodramatic literature about this time period um and even from this time period um there's also uh, apparently an uncle tom character uh, and this is all brought up by uh games journalist evan narcisse in a interview with one of the main developers um, and sort of, uh, he he asks uh, uh, the developer, you know, kind of, uh, there's a lot of, he points out, there's a lot of interesting work that you've done in terms of recreating, like, the look of buildings and the look of a street and what's going to be on that street and how do these boats look and how do dresses look and so on and so forth. But the story itself uh, falls into a lot of old and tired tropes uh, that come out of uh, melodramatic literature about enslaved people um, at this time. Uh, and the developer responds, and this is a direct quote, uh, there was no time for a cultural studies course or to learn about the entire history of African-American film and literature, unquote, uh, because they were so busy doing their historical research. Yeah, I didn't get a good sense. So so I, it's not not from an interview. It's from like a talk that de the developer gave, which... Oh, uh, it is? It, okay. Yeah, and the only reason I say that is I want, I want to cut Evan a little bit slack here because I think that he would have followed up on that <laughs> in, yeah. a, in a significant way. Uh, but but uh, you know, because I think what's being cited here is a uh, a, a piece that that Evan wrote. Um, okay. But, uh, but the only weird thing about that, or I mean, no, there's a lot of weird weird things about that, right? But the the thing that is interesting, right, is exactly the tension that you're pointing out that there's this idea of like historical research of like getting the facts on the ground and like no interest. In fact, in the direct quote, right, no interest in like cultural studies, which would be contextualization. Mm -hmm. like, you know, that's 100% the thing. Um, or to, you know, as you said, learn about the entire history of African-American film and literature. Um, I don't I don't think you have to learn about the entire history of, of a thing. But yeah, it's a particular kind of galling response. And I even I really like how uh, often Evan's work shows up in this book. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, we're not going to flag it every time, but, uh, uh, you know, shout out, shout out to him uh, <laughs> for, for really like doing the work here and getting cited uh, quite a bit um, as a as a kind of thing. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, what do you take from that? I mean, you're you're kind of a uh, the last episode I believe that we recorded. You said you were a historian ish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, right. How do you how do you take that? I mean, you're a game creator, Michael. Uh, mm -hmm. You are a historian ish. Um, how do you take that kind of statement from game dev? Well, it's it's illustrative of how completely the the industry um or at least you know this particular team or what have you has internalized precisely the thing that uh murray was trying to get at in the introduction of separating representation from system uh mm -hmm. because you know the systems that you are designing are and even and this is even weirder right because we're talking about sort of the the historical accuracy of like the material culture of the world so you're looking at documents at objects and so on and so forth and you're learning how to recreate them in in digital format as uh you know models in a game or whatever um that is treated somehow differently from 
like there's an assumption that that is different from learning about like what the life of a person who actually lived here might have been like or like how to avoid um sort of the the stereotypes that get inserted uh into into these imagined representations for political reasons uh that is sort of what is interesting to me up there, right? That's what jumps out. It's like, to me, if I, if I were making a game and I was setting it in a historical period and the protagonist was going to be black, like, like I would want to know not only what was this place like in a general sense, what was the material culture like, but I would want to look into what was it like for a, a black woman to live here at this time? Um, what are other stories that have been told? What are historical precedents? What are things that uh, were likely or unlikely? What is, uh, you know, sort of a, a tired trope? Um, and why is it tired? Like, why does it need to be reevaluated? These are all questions that I would ask myself as a historian slash creator. Uh, and just the the fact that they're just so distinct in in this quote from the dev is is mind boggling, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I was a little bit uh, taken aback by that as well. The uh, but the reason we've taken a little bit of a, a turn here, but the reason we uh, that Orientalism kind of comes up here, right, is in order to talk about how how the relationship between politics and power and the the player of the game, how that relationship hmm. works, and then like where you can go from there. Um, I would say I don't have the best sense of where that goes in this chapter. Uh, I think there's a lot of really cool kind of uh, specific close reading going on, but I don't have a good sense of like the the big, and so then therefore uh, out of this chapter. Um, but I have a, a couple pieces here and you can tell me if, if you think that uh, this is silly and wrong or not. Okay. Um, one of one of which, you know, you already talked about palimpsests and like how that gets evoked here. Uh, the other one is poetics of form and politics of identity, right? That's the beginning of the chapter in poetics. Uh, and you know that I start squinting and I start shaking my head when I see the word poem, <laughs> poems and poetics. Ugh, poetry? Are you kidding me? Uh, you know, I start uh, looking looking like a um, uh, what's what's the. Uh, Oh, I'm down a rabbit hole. From Oddworld, uh, the the cowboy character, <laughs> Stranger. I started looking like him. I started looking like a big furry guy with a cowboy hat and squinty eyes. Uh, anyway, um, uh, but poetics gets uh, done here or gets talked about here. And we get a definition, a slight definition as, quote, this is on 66, the perceptible elements of a gamic text and how they converge to bring about particular aesthetic and expressive effects uh, for the player. Um, and so it's it's not just that we get this representation of bi uh, raciality. It's not just that we get this kind of implicit Orientalism in the form and the way that it gets done and kind of uh, some implicit racial bias or some implicit racial framing uh, in, in the quote that we just talked about. But it's also that it creates that particular aesthetic and expressive effects for the player. It gives us a world to kind of play in. And the citation that she uses from Klastrup uh, says that worldness quote is is important here but we get a worldness that then we kind of live in and experience and and kind of walk around in the power relationships of um, and that produces a particular uh, set of of affects or a, a set of uh, decodings that we take away from the thing um, mm -hmm. I, I, I want to give a little uh, plug here and this is a book that also we're going to do on the show at some point I think uh, which is Defox Harrell's Phantasmal Media, um, mm -hmm. which which is a 
phenomenal book that's very that I found very difficult to read just because it is so. Um, uh, Harold is, is an MIT, I believe, still, and is mm-hmm. uh, has a lab there, and it very much is a book that is about like cognitive frames and natural language processing stuff and storytelling and race theory. It's like a whole lot of ways of thinking about the world and consciousness and the way that we come into experience um, and all in conversation with one another. So, so it really is a book that has mastery of a lot of domains. And I, I personally found that when I read it, I had to really read up on a lot of those things in order to get a lot out of it. So it might be a really good book to do on the show for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a but, great book. but that's, yeah. So, have you? Because uh, you were you were at MIT for a while. Huh, what? Michael. I uh, I I'm still there technically. Um, oh ooh. no no. No no. I'm saying it's this, a great I'm, book. I used it in my I used it in my dissertation, and I've published a um an article that uses it. Oh, that's right. That's studies. right. I've, yeah, you're uh, a fellow piece, right? Yes. No, I I have an entire article uh, using uh, that like like Harold's like framework uh to talk about how Othello would have worked um historically specifically uh with regard to how that play historically would have been performed with the main character in blackface and how that yeah. contributes to uh the process of of racialization um by teaching people how to take representations as uh indicative of real people who are not immediately present it's very good. You should go look it up or uh, DM Michael and ask him for a PDF. I bet he would <laughs> give you one. Uh, also, MIT has told me to tell you you're fired in the middle of the podcast. It's kind of weird. Oh, I, don't dang, know why. I don't know why dang, they would dang, do that. Dang. But uh, but all of this, all of what I just said is kind of geared toward uh, I, the last claim of, of the um, of the chapter, um, which is the the power of fictitiously reenacting things in order to learn something more about them. This game, right, this Assassin's Creed game, comes out in a moment, uh, the, the moment of uh, Obama's re-election in 2012, uh, where we have uh, both, all, all of this, there's like a, um, there's a flavor or a scent or something in kind of the, the cultural uh, atmosphere, right? We have Spielberg's film Lincoln. We also have... Uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter and Django Unchained uh and then this game Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation all of and which 12 Years do- a Slave is in there somewhere oh too, yeah right? yeah she, 12, she talks about 12 Years a Slave yes we have this cultural moment this period of like two to three years where a lot of stories about uh these topics um or about this time period about these locations about these anxieties uh culturally are all coming out and obviously like spielberg's lincoln is one type of movie abraham lincoln vampire hunter very very different in the same with django unchained and 12 years a slave uh and the conversation becomes like well, why why these two different representations? Why these two very different tones? Is one good? Is one bad? Is one doing different type of a different type of work than the other? Uh, in that cultural studies perspective, right? What is what meanings are being encoded and what meanings are being decoded? Yeah, and, and particularly around she's interested in this because uh, you know there's a question of is it right or is it good to play the history of slavery? Um, and this right. is something that comes up quite often, right? I mean, this is a, um, you know, every, you know, maybe 18 months to two years, we have uh, either a game that comes out, you know, kind of a blockbuster game, 
or there'll be an indie game that comes out that's trying to talk about slavery. And there are, of course, you know, very um, impassioned and serious responses to it. Um, and so, you know, it's a live question, I think, both at the time and in this moment. And she's ultimately concerned, I think, with um, if you do it, what can you get out of it? Right. As opposed to yeah. what if we had a simulation game that was, you know, very historically properly accurate, took no uh, liberties at all. Haha, ha, liberties. You get it? Mm-hmm. Assassin's Creed Liberation. You get it? Liberties. Sure. Anyway. Sure. Um, but uh, uh, if, if you did that right, would that be a better, quote unquote, representation? Um, mm-hmm. And she kind of comes to the conclusion. No. Right. She says this is on 84. <laughs> Quote, however, it could be argued that films like Django Unchained and Abraham Lincoln Vampire, Vampire, Vampire Hunter woof, did better critical work in terms of interrogating a mandated relationship of deference demanded of the history of American slavery and cracked open new possibilities for contending with a difficult historical moment. Um, so, so the idea would be that in being this kind of, uh, you know, in the case of Django Unchained, an exploitation film, in the case of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, uh, a kind of like pulp horror film in that way that gives us kind of a side view or a different angle on how uh, the the systems of power that undergirded slavery, how those things worked. And in doing so, might, you know, crack open, uh, as uh, as she puts it, crack open ways of approach for that. Um, I think this is a kind of a typical um, uh, academic move in that she asks, uh, it could, or she says, it could be argued, because <laughs> because mm-hmm. you know my immediate question is like, well, did it? You know, I don't I don't know right. that if I, I don't know if we have a more robust way of thinking through the history of slavery due to the production of Django Unchained. Um, mm-hmm. I you know big open question to me, and I'm left at the end of the chapter with that kind of big open question. Um, you know, kind of move by move going through the chapter, I agree with the analysis that's going on the whole time with this kind of lit review that happens uh, across all these different sources. But when we get to the end, I, I, I it still is an open question for me. I don't know if being able to play these situations makes them any more available to me or accessible to me um, or, or uh, available for deeper thought than any other type of representation of it. Well, and that's sort of the the ethical question that we are allowed to ask now that we have hooked, uh, you know, play and representation together, sort of fundamentally, right at the end. Like mm-hmm. uh, that's part of part of the reason we end there is because uh, for Murray, I think at least, being able to ask the question of what would be an ethical representation uh, is yeah, like that's kind of square one, but it's also the square we just sort of got to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, 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 it's an open question that that leaves us with the demand to answer it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, you know, I don't have I don't have an answer to it. Neither do I, and neither really exactly uh, does the next chapter, which is also about race, um, but has a very different approach. Uh, this chapter is called "Aesthetics of Ambivalence and Whiteness in Crisis." It's about the Last of Us. It's about the Last of Us and Spec Ops and Tomb Raider, but uh, and Spec Ops and Tomb Raider. But but really, I mean, yeah, seventy five percent of the Last of Us, a little bit of Spec Ops, and, and even less of Tomb Raider. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I feel. Like oh, I was just going to say, like, this is also this was one of those. It was a really weird book to be reading right now because okay, so chapter one, we've got our Ubisoft. 
uh ubisoft really in the news right now um mm-hmm. for for very uh bad things um yeah ubisoft heard. Uh, yeah has a broad culture of of harassment across any number of of departments and categories at the highest possible levels as well um you you should you can give it to google uh and learn a whole lot about it but there are a lot of allegations about ubisoft right now Mm-hmm. And then chapter two uh, is about you know, like the problem of race in in a couple of games, but specific like very broadly, The Last of Us, which of course The Last of Us Two just came out, and everyone is talking about that and what it's up to. And your uh, bullet points piece, I think that you just mentioned, was about The Last of Us Two. Really wish I'd read this uh, chapter before I read that bullet points piece. Would have made, <laughs> made a lot of that a lot uh, easier to get through. And I've read this before. I I, I read uh, this book. The first time, uh, this is my second time reading it. The first time I read it was uh, in uh, when I was writing my dissertation, which has a chapter that's half on Mad Max Fury Road and half on The Last of Us. And they're kind of two sides, uh, I, I, I say, to um, kind of representations of the post-apocalypse. And it, it is really interesting. I really do wish I'd reread this because there are pieces of this that that clearly like went into my dissertation, you know, in, in a broad way. Um, that I have like forgotten chunks of. And so it would have been great to refresh my memory of it be- beforehand. I read it like literally the day after that piece was was done because I just feel <laughs> like uh, there's a lot of citation that I could have done in this piece. So if you read that piece in bullet points, you should read this chapter um, because I-, I think they're very complementary to one another. I come to uh, different conclusions, I think, than, than uh, Murray does, but um, we have a similar way of looking at those games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh in general the the thing that unites all three of these games uh and starting with The Last of Us, right, as being part of a movement at the time that was called like the datification of video games, we had a a, a kind of rash of like this um like BioShock Infinite was one um a, a, a crop of games about whose protagonists were of very conflicted white men who had uh, either explicit or sort of symbolic or thematic uh, parental relationships, uh, and that was sort of the their the driving character engine of their plots. Uh, but Murray links this in into a broader uh, category of sort of uh, what what she calls whiteness in crisis, right? Or like sort of a, a sense, and this uh, also harkens back to the Obama re-election in 2012 and uh, the way that the the right wing in America, the way that the Republican Party really ratcheted up the the racism um, at that point, um, up to the up to the point to to right now when the world that we're living in. Uh, but uh, anyhow, all three of these games have white protagonists who are figured as not beyond critique right like there's something like they are threatened or uh they're morally ambiguous right like their uh their cultural centrality does not uh grant them kind of the 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 moral or ethical armor that it might once have in in kind of the broad popular imagination uh so we have the last of us with this guy who uh is you know, like, what is Joel up to? Like, what what happens at the end of that game? Did Joel 
make the the sort of right ethical decision or did he damn the world uh or in the case of spec ops the line of course we have a, a military shooter that is self-critical of its genre right we have the 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 bald white male soldier protagonist who marches into a, a, a foreign location um and proceeds to just murder indiscriminately dozens upon dozens of of uh, people who live there uh that sort of thing mm-hmm yeah, the uh that this gets moved into um or or set up by uh, a, a, an extended reading of Dylan Roof, uh the 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 mass shooter, the mm-hmm. the racist mass shooter, uh in his manifesto that I don't necessarily I don't know if that needed to be in here to, to to be perfectly frank i felt really weird reading through that i i understand that it's like that that roof becomes like kind of a central organizing figure for thinking about how masculinity and whiteness function here but i don't feel like i got an, enough out of that analysis to to spend so long kind of moving through the small movements of of uh of his argument that you know that the great replacement theory and the reason that you know he needs to uh, murder black people um and so mm-hmm. i i felt really actually really weird reading the the top part of this but um makes a connection between that and the film falling down which shows up repeatedly throughout the rest of this book which is you know joel schumacher film from the early 90s uh in which a man who just like can't take it anymore right classically mm-hmm. uh, a white man under siege murders people um you know uh, kind of the quote-unquote going postal uh narrative um but that all kind of leads up. I, 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 you know, however I feel about the roof analysis, uh, and, and you know, it being in the book, it ends up in a place which I think is really useful, which is a positive theory of whiteness. Uh, and when I say that, I don't mean positive as in good, like thumbs up, but I mean positive in the sense of like positive law. Um, it is mm-hmm. a theory of whiteness that holds it as something that has traits and values and is not just a normative empty system. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is on 98. She says, I see whiteness not as an invisible or empty or normative, but as occurring within the context of a dominant culture that is, in fact, intensely aware of whiteness and an entertainment industry that is likewise tuned into what will resonate with that dominant market. Um, and so this is in contrast to some other theories of whiteness that might say that uh, whiteness is just kind of an association of power uh, and it's just a, a, an access to power. Um, or that like whiteness is not a set of traits or qualities or pieces of cultures, but in fact is just whatever uh, dominant imperial society has managed to cobble together out of those things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Murray here is outlining and saying that no, whiteness has traits that it can recognize of itself, and media knows that. You know, media objects know. So, for example, uh, Joel in The Last of Us being a Texan dad wearing a flannel shirt that buttons down. He's got he's got a, a business that's failing in the opening five minutes of that game. He's got mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, a white daughter. Uh, you know all this resonance of of white woman fragility and uh, white masculine protectorism that you were just talking about, Michael. All of those things for Murray are things that dominant white culture can see and then think about and see itself in. Um, which, which is just a little bit of a different way of approaching it. And this is why she's using whiteness studies to get there, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a field of study that's kind of all about talking about um, the construction of whiteness and what its kind of qualities and traits are. Um, 
But yeah, that kind of moves us through the analysis that you were just talking about a minute ago of, of Joel as protector and Ellie as protected. And uh, that the whole space of these universes, right, the aesthetic world that we move through uh, or the aesthetics of the world that we move through in this game, that they are all there in order to kind of um, highlight the, the role of white masculinity in the world and that the, the necessity of protection in the condition of imperiledness of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the, the 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 chapter, right? Right. I mean, the the that, that's the reading of The Last of Us. Um, and just to sort of get them out out there, the mm-hmm. the reading of Spec Ops: The Line, of course, uh, makes a the a big point about that moment of of reflection, like literal re- literal reflection in the game, uh, where you la- launch the white phosphorus. Uh, and you can mm-hmm. see the reflection of your player character as you are doing this, right? You see like that reflection in in the screen of the apparatus you're using, and so uh, the game like forces the the player to look at the 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 like the 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 virtual body, right? The the sort of represent the represented body of the person who is ordering uh, this heinous war crime, because that is what what you do in that game is uh, you rain down white phosphorus on uh, it turns out a bunch of civilians um although white phosphorus uh, shouldn't be used uh whether or not it's being used on civilians just shouldn't be used at all that's why it's a war crime uh but then also that game doesn't quite go far enough because uh while it is critiquing the the military shooter um as a genre like look at who look at the type of person who gets propped up in these narratives right is sort of the argument of that game um, it doesn't really interrogate like the way that uh, um, the like the relationship between America and the Arab world, right? In that game, mm-hmm. like the actual military project itself is never really uh, complicated or investigated, uh, which I would argue goes back to the fact that the the game is based on Heart of Darkness, um, which is sort of similarly like, man, colonialism is bad for how bad it makes white people feel. It's got that kind of thing going on in it. Um, and then the really interesting thing about the Tomb Raider reboot uh, is that uh, that takes, you know, Lara Croft and makes her into a white fragility, like the, the the fragile white woman in in a hostile context with a, a bunch of people of color and uh Basically, that game makes you watch Laura die in horrible, horrible ways. Like, the deaths are all very graphic and gruesome. Uh, and so the game uh, fosters this relationship between you and your avatar, where sometimes you are Laura, like, playing through the game, but then other times you're, like, this disembodied, protective view trying to keep her from harm in in a, a unfamiliar and hostile environment. Um, and this is all all about sort of the 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 whiteness in crisis, right? Like what happened, like whiteness figured as, uh, not impervious, uh, but in, in some ways, like by focusing on the ways that whiteness may be harmed, uh, these games also don't really do the work of looking at how whiteness itself is a, a, an institution and structure of doing harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, something that I didn't really connect up, uh, until you just kind of put these things in relationship to one another, but I think is uh, revealing or helpful here, right? Is that 
early in the chapter, she reads all these different images of Joel, for example, putting his arm over Ellie, right? This kind of like protective, Mm -hmm. you know, you ever been in the car with someone in the passenger seat? You know, you ever been a little kid? I was, you know, I was once a little kid. Uh, Shocker. Uh, Hard to believe. Uh, Yeah, I know. You know, you're driving down the road and you got to slam on the brakes and your parent like puts their arm in front of you, right? So that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Um, You know, so she reads these signs or these, these images of Joel doing that kind of thing to Ellie and then reads that as the, you know, white masculine protectorate, uh, against the the white need to be protected woman and the way you just put it about the laura croft scenes right and there are these kind of qtes in that game where you know whatever you're going down a river and you have to hit buttons at certain time periods in order to keep laura from running into those things and it's kind of you are implicitly controlling her but it's really abstracted away from that and but but those are scenes when you are pressing that button you are the joel to Laura's mm-hmm. Ellie, that is, that is you putting your arm in front of that, so it abstracts out that kind of uh, protective whiteness, right? This implied whiteness, this mm-hmm. this protective function, it abstracts that out and then makes you as the player take on that abstract value. Um, and I didn't put that together when I was reading it, but I think the the way that you you know juxtapose or put those in relationship to one another uh, really really helped me get there. Um, and that also helps, I think, the, the thing I want to say, this is toward the end of the chapter, is a quote from 138. Um, so she says, these are the, quote, aesthetics of ambivalence. You know, this is the head of the chapter, or the title of the chapter. The aesthetics of ambivalence of which I speak, affective qualities that trade on notions of white male, uh, of the white male normative hero, but which in fact betray a larger form of whiteness that is deeply in crisis, desperate, and which strategically mobilizes itself as a form of otherness. It is a whiteness that appropriates the moral high ground of victimhood through its embattled status as a form of alterity, even while it trades on itself as normative. So the idea is that that Joel gets to do all the things that he does to embody white masculinity, but he does it from a position of someone who is in danger of being killed by the zombies. Uh, mm-hmm. The same thing is happening in Spec Ops of someone who is in danger of being murdered by this kind of faceless horde of uh, enemy troops and uh, civilians and um uh uh you know middle eastern people who live in in the i don't even remember what city that they're in um and uh laura same same deal with that it's both although it's nature and the kind of people who live on that island so the idea is that that whiteness gets to imagine itself as embattled and uh, attacked and from a position of being dominated and from that imaginary position in fact does the dominating um and I, that's exactly what you just said a, a minute ago, Michael. But I just wanted to put it in the context of this, like of, of the quote itself, which I think is really helpful. Right. Um, well, and it's um, just to jump back really quick, right? Just to touch mm-hmm, on The yeah. Last of Us, because I think it's the the one that really condenses a lot of this. Um, this is a quote from 119. Uh, and spoilers for The Last of Us, if, if you haven't played it, I'm sorry. You, uh, but, you have all, already spoiled the ending of The Last uh, yeah. of Us. <laughs> right. Uh, so the, the whole thing about The Last of Us um, is that uh, Ellie, the the girl that Joel is protecting, has an immunity, uh, and they like they are working together to get to uh, this group called the Fireflies, who are supposedly kind of like the last bastion of civilization in the zombie post apocalypse, um, and they might be working on a cure. Uh, they get Ellie there to the the Fireflies facility. Turns out they are working on a cure. They want to use Ellie's immunity to help them, but hold up. Turns out, in order to do this, they are going to have to kill Ellie and harvest her brain matter. 
Um, and then Joel, who has spent this entire time sort of, you know, building up this relationship with Ellie, uh, as, as his surrogate daughter, because his daughter, uh, dies at the, at the beginning of that game, incidentally is shot by a police officer. Um, so, uh, that's how that happens. He, he gets the surrogate daughter and then the, the final act of the game is you as Joel slaughtering all of these doctors uh, who are going to kill Ellie and she's under sedation. So you sneak her out of the hospital um, and have essentially like destroyed whatever chance there might have been for a cure being synthesized uh, at this moment. Um, and so Murray says, while the player must be goal oriented in their efficient killing of the fireflies, the context of this bloodbath suggests that it is highly problematic and forecloses the possibility of heroism on behalf of humanity. Um, however, of course, uh, that is not the single reading that players got from that game. Like this was taken as a point of discussion and debate. Was it the right thing to do? And I think it is precisely uh, in uh, this this aesthetics of ambivalence, right? That sort of strategic maneuvering of, of um, whiteness, right? Like, you don't understand Joel had to do what he did uh, because, you know, whatever, whatever sort of excuse you want to factor in there. Um, but, like, Joel's personality, Joel's goals uh, get to be valid because of the the interiority and the experiences um that we're willing to grant him yeah and then i what it's interesting to read this in in the context of the last of us 2 as well and i'm not going to get into specifics of the last of us 2 but just to say that people who've played that game know that this this question of what happens at the end of The Last of Us 1, that it comes back in, in in robust ways, but they have the conversation that you are having. I mean, characters in the game take on the positions, the the, the rhetorical positions of, of the players of the game after they played the first one and kind of have a, a debate slash discussion of was that the right thing to do? And it, it is a 100% just doubling down on the exact th- thing that you're talking about, that, that Joel did the thing because he is the man he is and we see the way that he is built and we see the way that he gets to that position. And so then therefore, well, you, you know, <laughs> it's a condition in, in which uh, they want you to, ha- to hand it to him. Mm-hmm. But uh, listener, you really don't got to hand it to him. You don't. <laughs> Uh, but, but, but yeah, and this is a place, you know, I, I wrote in my notes, like this is a place where that, that analytic granularity I talked at the beginning of the episode would, I feel like would really help me out because I like in the broad reading of the images and the gameplay and the, the examples that are used, I think that all of this is correct. Like I understand how the argument moves, but it's like, I, I'm not quite sure what activates this like aesthetics of ambivalence i mean is it being is it reading the plot summary because i feel like a lot of this can happen with the plot summary uh Mm -hmm. is it playing the first third of the game and then not playing do i have to play every single part of this game in order to access an analytic of the aesthetics of ambivalence um I, i it's this kind of thing where like I agree that this is a good name to put to it, and I agree that this is the thing that's happening, but I don't know what the thing is that like inaugurates this this paradigm, right? It seems to be a paradigm that fits these three games um, and to, to be birthed out of analysis of it, but I don't know where to go with it, you know, and how to maybe apply it in, in other conditions. I'm definitely going to be engaging with this uh, in the book that I'm working on. Um, I think it's really helpful and generative. This is a good place to, to say this, 
Occasionally, we get feedback on the show uh, where where people don't agree with the way that we uh, read things or the way that we explain things. And uh, I want to say, that's okay. That's like uh, kind of the point, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, there, are plenty, there are plenty of things in the show, right, where, where we talk about or, or talk about explanations or talk about uh, ways that, that books work that we just don't agree with or we don't understand or uh, that, that we have, you know, issues with. And sometimes that's because we just didn't understand it. I think that's happened probably more than one time. And sometimes it's because we come from a different disciplinary position. But, but ultimately, the, the work of thinking, right, and the, the, the purpose of publishing academic word, work is not to, and to making a show like this, which I think is, you know, in the, I don't know, pseudo-academic space. Um, the purpose is not to like create the definitive, real, true answer to things. Uh, I mean, here in the show, we're trying to give a perspective and an explanation of things, but we can be we can be disagreed with and we can be wrong as much as anyone else. Um, and in fact, in this show, what I what I've found to be really valuable about it, and maybe you feel this way too, Michael, but I've discovered a lot of arguments and books that I haven't really agreed with, but have been very helpful for me to figure out what I do actually think. Um, and so when I say something here about the aesthetics of ambivalence of not really understanding the kind of granularity of it, it's not like, well, we've got to chuck that out the door. It, it's that this is a really great opportunity for me to take this idea and to kind of wrestle with it and see where I land with it and to put it in conversation with other other things. A very similar thing. I and mean, People probably know I had a very negative reaction to the Aubrey Annable book that we read, but I'll tell you uh, one book that I've cited in every academic piece I've written since we read that book has been Aubrey Annable's book because uh, it's been very <laughs> helpful for me to figure out exactly what I think uh, on the issue and to, it's, you know, it's kind of something to define myself sometimes with and then sometimes against. So um, th- this is not a show that's that's meant to be like, you know, the definitive uh, answer to things. Uh, my hope is that you take our thoughts and our claims about these things and engage with them in the same way that we engage with uh, the, the books that we're reading. Um, I want to say that at the top, and that's the thing that I forgot. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where we end with the chapter. Um, and then unless you have anything else to say, Michael, we can talk about chapter three, the landscapes of games as ideology. Yeah, so this uh, this book is interesting because the first two chapters are about specific characters and sort of rep- like character as representation, essentially. Uh, and then the last two chapters end up being about space and landscape, um, which actually it, it, it fits together in the end uh, much more than it seems in description, if only because I think we, we are so used to seeing monographs that work like that work on a single topic right this is this book is going to be all about uh this particular type of character who shows up in multiple video games or something like that uh but really like what what are these characters that we've been talking about for these first two chapters without the spaces that we are allowed to uh activate them in to operate them in mm-hmm. uh and so chapter three uh takes a look at uh, Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain, uh, as a way that ideology constructs the spaces of video games. Or, well, that's one way of putting it, um, and the other way of putting it is sort of, um, how, how do spaces in video games get constructed such that you don't see the ideology? Specifically, what this chapter is about is about um, MGS5 and how it represents Afghanistan. 
Yeah, there, there's this kind of like, what is the, uh, this is this is uh, a summary that is like too simplistic and we can, we'll get to the, the kind of specifics of it. But in a general sense, you know, what are the ideas and thoughts that a landscape can give you about the world um, beyond what, what, you know, is uh, beyond what the characters say about it, for example, or beyond what uh, the characters who exist within it. Um, the, yeah. I don't know. What, what do you think about this? I feel like I've been uh, talking too much. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think about this? Because it's really specifically about uh, not just Metal Gear Solid Five, but about Afghanistan in particular, mm-hmm. right? Uh, she doesn't really right. talk about... In Metal Gear Solid Five. there's two sections you go to. You go to, or two places, locations. You go to Afghanistan, and you go to the Angola-Zaire border region. And mm-hmm. uh, she's really concerned with Afghanistan um, in this chapter. Right. Um so uh, the chapter opens, sort of the first maybe chunk of it, is about the camera in, in The Phantom Pain, uh, which is the, when we say camera, when we're talking about a video game, uh, the the temptation, of course, is to think of like a camera floating around in space. But of course, with a video game, this is all being programmed from the ground up. All of this is representation, not only the space itself, but like the camera itself is is a digital artifact. Um, and so the camera in Metal Gear Solid Five is uh, programmed to almost act like to act as if the camera itself were an object in the world. Like you look toward the sun and you see a, a lens flare uh, in a way that you would if you had, if you were standing on this hill in this particular light and looking at the sun. Um, and then when you hear like when uh, sounds get too close to where the camera is in, in the space, you can hear kind of the, uh, the fuzzy crackling on, on the camera's microphone. Um, all of these effects come together to make it feel uh, real, quote unquote real, right? Like these add an air of realism by making it feel as if the camera were an actual object in a place. Uh, but of course, the irony is that what all of this is doing is actually highlighting the mediatory function of the camera itself. So kind of counterintuitively, the the space ends up feeling more real or it, the the representation feels more realistic uh precisely because it is falsifying certain types of uh uh like sense data that we take as uh indicative of, of a documentary representation so i just think that's really interesting <laughs> uh did you have any thoughts yeah, on it's that yeah very- yeah, it's it's very similar. I think, you know, there's a similar critique that happens in film studies of, of you know, things that we think of as, quote unquote, more realistic. Uh, so for, you know, shaky cam, right, that, that embodies mm-hmm. you within the thing. Um, that's not really, you know, that's pure artifice, right? You mm-hmm. know, the, the, the camera is, uh, maybe it's handheld, but you're, you're having to do work to make that happen. It's, it's purely artificial, but it makes it feel like it is you're more in the place or, you're, you know, you're more in the moment. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think, you know, that it's, it's interesting to see a kind of inheritance of cinema, uh, that, that's happening in, in this place. Um, I, I really like the movement here to, to Baudrillard and hyper-reality, um, you know, the idea mm-hmm. that, uh, that it's a recreation of a recreation of a recreation. And so at that point you end mm-hmm. up with this like Afghanistan, that's an approximation of Afghanistan, it's an approximation of Afghanistan, Basically, a, a, a big amount of the word count of this chapter, or at least I felt like a big chunk, was a um, 
working through the history of American ideology of Afghanistan. And so basically what she says to kind of reconstruct the timeline is, you know, uh, Soviet Union invades Afghanistan in the late 1980s. And so the United States, in order to uh, talk about their intervention or to justify the United States' intervention against the Soviets in Afghanistan, has to create an, an, uh, uh, an ideology of Afghanistan. And the way she puts it somewhere, this is not an exact quote, but the it's this image of uh uh, Afghanis living in, uh, you know, hutches and villages who are being dominated by this giant technological force, you know, mm -hmm. at, at some point, like the tanks rolling like, in and everything. Yeah, it, exactly. You know, helicopters, things like that. And at some point someone says something, uh, one of the quotes is like, I think a, a 17th century army up against, uh, you know, a 20th century military force. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, that's an American ideological construction in order to justify kind of a proxy war with the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Um, and then that that our intervention there ultimately ends up empowering the Taliban and ultimately ends up creating 9-11. So, you know, or, or uh, uh, generating the conditions under which 9-11 becomes possible is maybe right. the, the, and, the best way of, of putting that. After um, which... So, uh, uh, yeah. I was going to say, after which Afghanistan goes through kind of like a second round of ideological representation uh, yeah. in order to uh, justify intervention there in a in a different way. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, famously that that's done by uh, uh, and, and gets a broad base of support, you know, both both uh, Dem the two whole parties, Democrats and Republicans, everyone agreed uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> that we need to do that, not just like as a revenge tactic for 9-11, which is has been, I think, the um, over the past several years, that's become like the dominant thing. Right. Everyone agreed that we had to go and, and do the kind of nationalistic project of invading Afghanistan in order to respond to 9-11. But really, mm -hmm. that yes, that is factually correct. But the other side of that was kind of a soft power projection of talking about the civilians in Afghanistan and the way that they were being dominated by the Taliban. So it was this kind of global humanitarian liberalism move, right? We got we to gotta go do democracy promotion with, with warfare. Mm -hmm. And then like the straight military interventionism. And uh, so, so yeah, it's exactly what you're saying, right? So there's uh, an ideology that gets supplanted by another ideology, another representation that then gets supplanted, she argues, by um, uh, Hideo Kojima, who is Japanese and is fa and fixated on American cinema, creating an American cinematic representation of the American representations of Afghanistan within a video game. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's this layering of different modes of representation, all of which have their own ideological components, all of which have their own political beliefs and their political strategies built into them. And ultimately what is produced out of all of that layering is an Afghanistan that is quote unquote real, right? Realistic, but is realistic in conjunction with all these different ideological components to them. Um, and she, she likens that to Baudrillard's hyper-reality. And the reason way earlier, an hour ago, I said we're going to talk about Disneyland two times is that's exactly what Disney is. Yes. <laughs> to, to Baudrillard. Um, you know, it is, it is a representation of the way that America thinks about itself in all of these different kinds of ways. And so it's a representation of it, a representation of a representation. Um, and so you get to go experience the American dream mediated through a corporate object a, cor a corporate fake universe 
And that's exactly mm-hmm. what's happening with uh, Metal Gear Solid Five. We we are going and imagining Afghanistan and going and playing in an imagination of Afghanistan, right? Uh, which is tellingly like all wilderness, basically. It, with yeah, there are no some, people, <laughs> right? With with scattered settlements um, that are obviously like have been standing a long time and are currently only inhabited by uh, like Soviet troops, right? Yeah, uh, like the the idea is that. Uh, the Soviets have come in and very conveniently already removed all of the civilians or people who might have actually lived here and they've taken over this area. Uh, and this encourages you to, be- because the only people who are here are people who are hostile to you or people who are your your enemies as the player, right? This encourages you to conceive of the the space of play, of the landscape in in instrumental terms right and in totally like uh what is what in this place is going to be advantageous to me in order to you know snipe these dudes or sneak up on them or something like that yeah a quote that you have in your notes which i think is really helpful here is on 159 uh games is concentrated quote games is concentrated forms in which a given society finds its cultural expression through a politics of representation Mm -hmm. right and again this is not in the sense of like you know, uh, who is the protagonist of the thing, right? Or, or uh, a kind of like um, the representation as we might know it, but representation in the, the sense of uh, creating a uh, aesthetic object that contains um, all of these, a lot of different elements to it. And so Afghanistan itself is a representation of ideology. That was the, the other half of, of uh instrumentalizing the landscape is not only do you learn to look at the landscape in terms of like what here is favorable to me to accomplish whatever goals I have the the entire premise behind that way of thinking that you've already kind of been shuttled into is understanding Afghanistan as a place in need of intervention yeah which is the the fundamental thing that comes through in American representations of Afghanistan uh, both during um, the Soviet invasion and after 9-11 as uh, Afghanistan as a place that needs to be intervened in somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's good. That's kind of the argument of the whole thing. We're, we're uh, this this chapter I think has more than any other chapters, uh, any of the other chapters, kind of a careful walking through of how this goes. And so there's a lot of kind of secondary resources or, or citational apparatus that that is present in the chapter. Um, uh, but another argument or another way that this gets talked about, which I think is really cool, is the the relationship between the personal and space. Um, and so the idea that that uh, she, she's reading fast travel systems, basically, and the idea right. that being able to kind of zip around the map mm-hmm. and being able to take the helicopter, for example, in uh, um, in Metal Gear Solid Five, that that confers a certain type of perspective of mastery over the domain. And she's citing William Huber. Uh, for part of this, uh, talking about traversal and domination. The the other part of the argument that I found really interesting is that w- at the, in the intro to the book, she basically says, like, all of these books are third-person... Uh, th- uh, I actually have the quote written. I'd rather read the quote than just do it. But she's basically talking about um, the, the, all, why all the games are the same in the book. It's on page 15. She says... Quote, all the video games analyze are third-person perspective and contain navigable, highly articulated spaces, right? So these are, uh, they have a lot of interactivity, you know, for lack of a better word. Um, they are, uh, 
they have a similar set of camera positions. They're similar ways of interacting with the world. And I think that that matters the most to me in this chapter, because basically what she is arguing through both that the example of the, the fast travel stuff and in the way that you engage with this landscape by, for example, looking through binoculars and things like that. She's basically arguing that that Big Boss, you know, the character that you play, Venom Snake, uh, that Venom Snake is ultimately just an excuse to dominate a space. Mm-hmm. That, that he is just a mechanism or a mode through which that we get access to different ways of dominating this imaginary landscape of Afghanistan. Um, and, and I find that uh, very interesting. Um, and she she pairs that with an argument about um, understanding 3D worlds and 3D space. So on 181, she says... As in film, the world building of video games consists of a framing that constitutes itself as representing that which can be seen within it in relation to what is presumed to persistently exist beyond it. There's a sense that what cannot be seen nevertheless exists and lives in a totality beyond the frame of the playable image. And so, you know, this is this is kind of how you make a world feel like a world in a film. It's how you make a world actually be a world in a game. But the kind of attendant argument to that or the follow on is that uh, you know, it's it's like Skyrim, right? If you see it, you can go there. In Metal Gear Solid Five, if you see an ideological representation of a space, you can go there and you can dominate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you and so then every moment, I, I think this is not argued, but I think the the follow on that we take from it is that every moment of playing Metal Gear Solid Five is participating in an ideology that is implicitly and explicitly one of domination, mm-hmm. which is like a pretty powerful claim, I think. It is, and I think it uh, directs us into the next chapter uh, pretty directly, unless there's anything else you wanted to touch on here. I, I think I think that's it. I, I would say yeah. I, if you are um, if you're thinking about teaching this book, or you're thinking about like, oh, I've only got so much time. You know, what is the chapter I need to read to really like get the most out of the book? I think you should read the whole book. You know, and that's kind of me. But if you're not, if that's not available to you, I would suggest reading chapter three. That that to me is the most uh, fulfilling and, and makes me the most excited about the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the next chapter then is called The World is a Ghetto, Imagining the Global Metropolis in Playable Representation. And this is a chapter actually that uh, brings together basically all of, all of the little concerns of the other chapters come together here really well. Um, in a, like in a way that, as I said uh, back before the previous chapter, it feels a little weird how this how this book splits, how the chapter topics split, but this last chapter, I think, actually does a really great job of sort of corralling a whole bunch of stuff that we've talked about so far into uh, a single uh, sort of argument, which is about how, uh, like, large, con- like, contemporary or, like, postmodern uh, urban spaces, um, or sort of actually even, like, near-future urban spaces, right? Because both of these games are sort of speculative. We're talking about Max Payne 3 and Remember Me. Um, how that, how these representations of the city, and playable representations, right? They're, they're both games where you uh, move through these cities in various ways. Uh, how that uh, intersects with their representation of... Uh, you know, a, a imperiled whiteness, uh, or masculine rage, or uh, you know, these these sort of uh, um, messier identity categories, right? How how do these things all kind of link up together? Uh, and it does it pretty nicely, I think. Yeah, um, 
it, it's really interesting like the periodization of these games like max Payne 3 and remember me feel like of a cohort to me and i don't know why <laughs> i mean like, they came out in similar times but but to me they are very they don't have any mechanical similarity really at all uh but but i really do like the kind of combination uh of them of them here um and I kind of agree with you too. I, I don't know how much new argument I think is coming through in this chapter, but I think the way that it all kind of comes together in the end is is good. Um, on page 185, 186, she sets up the chapter by saying, in a larger sense, this chapter addresses the dual-edged anxiety of the non-Western world configured as mega ghetto and the disorienting effects of global capitalist flows, which manifest themselves through the mobilization of metaphors around amnesia or forgetting. So... Mm-hmm. It's all the stuff that, yeah, like you're saying, it kind of builds up together, right? Like uh, characters have in, in their kind of representational form, they carry a politics with them. You know, that's chapter one. Mm-hmm. Chapter two, the the context in which they get evoked and the ideologies that they get aligned with, those things matter because it means that we're engaging with those, those ideologies in particular kinds of ways. And that in the case of chapter two, whiteness. In the case of this chapter, kind of whiteness too. Uh, chapter three, those those characters with their attendant ideologies fit into a landscape of ideology. Um, and chapter four, uh, those characters with their attendant ideologies fit into a landscape of ideologies that are then presented in different kinds of ways. And that those presentations specifically here around amnesia or forgetting, those matter too, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a kind of meta framework way. So yeah, I think that I, I agree that like that kind of building it's almost like scale, right? It's building upward in scale uh, is really efficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, uh, I mean, just the readings of the games, uh, I have not played either of them. Uh, so in particular, I have a better sense, I think, of... I have a better sense of the old Max Payne games than mm-hmm. than the than the new one. Uh, but the thing that does strike me, right, is that uh, that game is in a completely different context than than the first two Max Payne games. The first two take place in, like, it is, like, explicitly New York City, isn't it? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think it's, like, it is New York City. Well, the, the things that I remember about Max Payne is, like, the the weird, like, sinister mythological elements, right? Like, that's my mm-hmm. stuff. So the fact that, like, Max Payne takes place during a snowstorm that seems to never end or something like that, like, that's what I'm into. Um, but Max Payne 3 uh, just, like, transitions him into a, I think it's, like, a couple years in the future, uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, where he's working as a bodyguard for, a, a is it a drug lord or something? Um, yeah, but anyway, kind of, maybe a businessman. Yeah, uh, so... And and from there, right, it's a, at least from what I'm reading here, it seems to be a, a fairly predictable kind of uh, hard-boiled crime kind of story uh, with kind of the, the, the caveat that it is taking place in, um, you know, Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, in, at a time subject to just like intense... Uh, economic division right like the wealth gap is, is huge and there are uh like uh fa- i think they're called uh favelas which um mm-hmm. are kind of like poor areas like you know we might call them slums or ghettos uh where people live in in shacks and things like that and of course in this game uh you go running through these places and are just like blowing up uh you know your enemies drug dealers who are all uh primarily black and brown men um 
but uh, that is all of this is to say, right, is uh, on kind of a meta level, what this weird change of setting is doing is activating that uh, that whiteness and crisis uh, thing that we were talking about in the second chapter, because suddenly we have uh, this character who we know from one very particular location uh, in another fighting types of people that he hasn't fought for reasons he hasn't fought. Uh, and all kind of at the behest of these, you know, neoliberal global capital flows, right? Somehow he, uh, Max Payne has filtered down from New York to Brazil, and it's because, like, that's where the money is going. And that, in and of itself, is a kind of attack on his his whiteness, right? Uh, so there's that kind of reading. Uh, and then, did you have anything you wanted to say about Max Payne 3? Uh, no, the, the only, only thing that I thought, I think you did a great job of summarizing what she's after. It is interesting that she's like very kind of, I think, gentle. She's very charitable about mm -hmm. uh, the narrative here because the the film is just man on fire or the game is just the film man on fire. And she, she kind of says oh, that she okay. says it's got elements of other stuff, but it literally is like a bodyguard who loses a child and has to go get it back and is going to like kill everyone the whole way through. That's exactly the plot of Max Payne 3 with a little bit of like, uh, you know, uh, Max Payne angst about his children and family being killed in the previous mm -hmm. games. Um, and But then all those like aesthetic identifiers and things like that that she's pointing out because, you know, the camera will glitch out and you get lens flares and all kinds of stuff like that. It's very uh, bright uh, and like gritty looking. Uh, that's mm -hmm. just man on fire. <laughs> that's no, okay. Uh, the only thing Max Payne three is missing. It, it got, uh, uh, a, you know, a techno soundtrack or kind of a dance music, uh, soundtrack and, uh, sadly didn't get the nine inch nails soundtrack, uh, like oh. fire did, but yeah, but, oh, but no, that's a great summary of what she's, what she's talking about. Um, it is very, there's a big disjuncture between Max Payne one and two in this game, but, uh, you were going to talk about remember me. Well, I was going to ask, actually, if you had anything to say about Remember Me, because I haven't, I have heard people talk about it, I haven't played it, um, and I don't have the best sense for what playing it uh, is like, or even kind of the whole deal of it from the description given here, although I do know that the, the big things, right, is that it takes place in Neo-Paris in a dystopian future uh, where memory editing uh, is, is a commonplace technology, uh, and it is controlled by, of course, the the worst people, uh, leaving a, a vast underclass uh, uh, of folks. And you are you are there. You are the player character. Yeah. So you play this character called Nillen, um, who is like involved in all this kind of stuff. She's she's part of a group or aligned with a group called the Errorists, who are okay. terrorists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're Errorist terrorists. Um, who are like trying to disrupt basically this this economy of memory production. And ultimately, there are people who get kind of memory wiped and, and different things happen to them uh, where there's a system in place basically to enslave them. Uh, so it's the mm -hmm. idea of creating a global underclass or, or, I mean, presumably a global underclass to then reinstitute kind of memory slavery uh, or reinstitute slavery under a new kind of uh, um, uh, innovation, technical innovation of memory editing. Um, she does a lot of reading here, you know, about the pressings, which are like your combo buttons that you can do because you can rewrite your combos in the game by assigning them differently, uh, which, yeah. you know, is another system of memory. Um, 
but but I actually don't know. I don't know if I think that like all of these like little minute pieces of reading do much for the ultimate production of the argument. Um, the ultimate production of the argument of, for the chapter is on 187. And I think it maybe it's just better to read this than to, to kind of work through the blow by blow. Um, so 187, quote, the imaging of the metropolis within video games can be thought of not merely fixed not of as, not merely fixed representations that illustrate a particular ideological bent, but something much more dynamic and engaged with the actual world. These imagined cities, while surely not singularly responsible for the world as it is, or as it will be, provide insight into lived world fears by modeling a microcosm of anticipated conditions, affective fictions that are critical to our capacities to imagine potential geopolitical futures. This is like right toward the, uh, the I think, the middle point of the chapter. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, of, a lot of academic uh, language, I think, in there. But ultimately what she is after in these two examples is saying that they give us two ways of thinking about um, relations between ideologies that exist in our world and how they might change in the future. Uh, one is exactly what you were saying about Max Payne, right? It's embattled white masculinity that is attempting to, or, or not even attempting, is running into, like you would run into a brick wall, um, multiculturalism is reacting in violence, right? Mm-hmm. So Max Payne is is verified and able to do what he is doing because it is his subject position that verifies that violence and, and allows it to happen. Um, you, you know, when you, when you see uh, American militia members and you see white men standing, you know, uh, with assault rifles in lines in front of protesters, it's the exact same argument being, being made about that. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, and then the other side is that there is a flexible, and this is the remember me side, there is a flexible possible multiculturalism that is based on possible domination all right, this is this is a landscape of domination, much like the landscape of domination that existed in around Afghanistan. This dystopian neo-Paris city is a landscape of domination, but it's one that has built within it the ultimate ability to undo it. So the idea that Nilan can do memory rewriting herself and can see that as a form of access and of change and of of uh, destruction, right? She's part of this terrorist group that's trying to tear the system down, that ultimately that that might provide some sort of way of thinking about how you exist within overdetermining capitalism or violent capitalism or capitalism that is extracting everything from you, but there might be the chance to unravel it or to do something within it, to, to kind of change it. The really um, interesting parallel that uh, gets made here is between sort of the signature mechanics of either game. So whereas Max mm-hmm. Payne as a series is invested in bullet time, right? That's sort of like the, the first game comes out like just after the matrix. And so everyone is all into bullet time. Uh, so Max Payne three also has a bullet time mechanic. And the way that Murray reads this is to say that uh, essentially, right? Uh, bullet time is a way of, instrumentalizing space-time, right? The, the 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 sort of foundation of reality itself in order to just better shoot people, right? Like that is that is the that is the relationship to the environment or to space that is being encouraged in that game. Um, whereas remember me, where it has various sort of puzzles where you can uh, change people's memories uh, and like in in like you change their memory in a way that impacts their present behavior and sort of like future orientation. Uh, 
so there, it's it's more productive, right? Like you 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 don't chain you don't intervene in sort of like space time itself, but you uh, modify the flow of space and time by uh, you know intervening in in the memories of people and in the ways that they understand the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, you know what's interesting about playing these games i like remember me a lot i think it's a very interesting game i've tried to write about it before and and i just don't think i have like the the academic handle to it i I tried to write about it well i'm not going to get into it but uh i it might show up in my book but in the original essay that that i wrote for the chapter that's going in my book i i tried to do it and i just couldn't make it work but um what's interesting is like the aestheticization of how you do violence to someone by deleting their memories. So for example, you can do these like combos that, that end in like basically headshots and it'll be like Nilin who like gets someone down in front of her and she's using her like glove that memory edits and it like blows memory fragments, which get turned into these like 3d designs. It like blows them through their face. Hmm. Um, and the, the implication, right. Is that you are, like these people who have already been, um, you know, for example, if they're the the kind of underclass that you have to fight, these people who have had all their memories stolen, the idea is that you were like blowing their memories out of their head to the extent to where they are just brain stems. Like you, you, you know, you're you're making them brain dead functionally. Um, and I don't know how I fit that into. <laughs> to I had wondered the about paradigm that. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Okay. Um, so so there's there's a little bit of the some you know. Um, close reading that I think might go against the grain here. Um, but uh, I think in the broad strokes, I, you know, I think I agree with these arguments. What do you think about this? Did you, Oh, you didn't write about this in your notes. The very last paragraph of the book. Do you, do you want me to read it? Yeah, go ahead. 228. Quote, playable representations matter. They are affective fictions critical for our imaginative capacities to envision potential geopolitical eventualities. Their extremely potent anticipatory images suggest that the tools of cultural analysis are needed, more than ever, to both unveil their significations within the context of their making and to make sense of what dreams we carry into the future. End quote. What do you think about that? Uh, yes, I agree. Right? Like, that is uh, a pretty good, I think, distillation of, I mean, why do I study literature? Right? Like, it's not a playable representation, but uh, the logic feels sort of the the same to me. Like, why do I, why do I look carefully at anything I look at? Well, you know, it's, it's this idea of being able to, as she puts it, uh, unveil their significations within the context of their making, uh, and then... Uh, making sense of the dreams we carry into the future, which is to say uh, the stuff that we can find in these cultural objects is already at work in the culture around us, right? We're operating at kind of a delay. Yeah. Yeah, we're already swimming in it. Any final thoughts, Mike? I was going to ask what you thought. I think it's fine. Like, I I agree. Um, You know, I, the, the, yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting to both unveil their significations within the context of their making and to make sense of what dreams we carry into the future. And the it's interesting to think about the whole book in relationship to that because there are a few developer quotes kind of scattered here and there. But I, you know, I would think that if to really do this, and I, I think the book is great. I mean, this is not a criticism of the book, but it's interesting that it, it kind of 
in its last paragraph kind of retrojectively says you got to look at the conditions of creation encoding and the creation and uh, the the place where we go with them decoding in order to uh, to figure out where we go from here. And I think that's true, but also like wouldn't that necessitate industrial analysis? Like political economy of the industry? Yes. Yeah. And that's like not in this book. So more work to be done. More work to be done. I think it's a great book. Uh, It's just, it's an interesting way of kind of casting the project of the book. Or maybe it's not casting the project of the book and maybe it's saying, no, we need to like do the kind of work that's here in this book and also industrial analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I also don't do industrial analysis. I'm not, you know, this is not me being like, well, my method, Michael, my method, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't do that either. But um, it, 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 I, I thought it was an interesting way to end the book. Um, but yeah, there, there are all kinds of kind of smaller pieces of, of the book that we didn't get to. I think in this last chapter in particular, there's uh, this kind of move. You previewed a little bit of it, Michael, but the kind of blow by blow of how... Um, uh, the pre uh, the Olympics and all that kind of stuff, how that worked out. Um, mm, yeah, that, that, that I thought was interesting reading it, but I don't think we need to recount it here. Um, yeah, I thought it was an interesting book overall. I think it was very helpful yeah. for me for learning more about game studies. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a good book. And it's also it's one of those books that uh, despite being only two years old, feels like it's only gotten more and more relevant in the two years since it's been published. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. Shame about that price, though. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm saying that and people might feel weird about that, but that is not in any way a criticism of the author or anything like that. Academic publishing uh, has some problems, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that is like a safe thing to say. And I think that books should not cost a hundred dollars. Yeah, like, I agree. Just, just straight up. I don't think that should be a thing. Um, uh, you know, academic publishing is weird and bad in, in some ways. What are we going to read next, Michael? I, what are we going to read next? I don't know. Well, we'll figure it out. You got anything you want to plug? Yeah. Nope. Uh, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Warren is Dead. You can find me at... Uh, in, in, in the imagination land of Afghanistan... <laughs> <laughs> where i'm just hanging out with a horse with d horse d horse d horse no uh i but i'll be honest with you playing it or reading this book i was like damn i want to play that game again <laughs> <laughs> um uh but uh you can find me at c consulman uh range uh range touch twitter twitter.com slash range touch that's a way of doing it i just signed a contract on uh to write a book about video games and speculation if you've got an essay on video games and speculation or uh video games and science fiction that you've published and i might not know anything about uh that'd be great if you would send that to me you can dm it to me on twitter that's probably the best place or you can send it to me on discord um why not you know uh use this platform to get people to send me citations right yeah (laughs) uh got a big big stack of books on speculation right here beside me ready to dig in um but uh, if you want to support the show, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash range touch and you can check out more stuff that we're doing youtube.com slash range touch. When this comes out, it'll be a couple weeks. We've just finished Fallout 2 in our show Too Much Future that Michael and I do where we talk about the Fallout games. If you like the show, I promise you that you will like listening to us talk about the Fallout games. It's a similar idea, but what if we took 
like two and a half months to read a book. And we talked about every chapter by breaking it down into really small parts. Uh, <laughs> and it was a, a fallout game. Um, weirdly enough, I, I think that what we've been talking about, about landscape and ideology and some of the things in this book, very similar to some of the arguments we've been making about fallout. We just yep. didn't have the language, uh, you know, of this book, um, uh, in order to get there. So, uh, you know, it's been very helpful, I think, to, to think about those two things in relationship to one another. Um, uh, we can't say anything about it yet, but Michael and I have co-submitted. How about that? It's 2020. Two people can yeah. write an, an essay together. We've co-submitted an essay or an abstract about an essay on CLR James. Uh, Woo! and we'll find out. Maybe we'll write that. Maybe we won't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be uh, very glad to write that. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm excited about doing it. Hopefully we will. But, um, so, so we're working on that. And another big one. So this is going to come out, uh, you know, before the end of July, but August 3rd, August 3rd, mm -hmm. uh, you can go to insert URL here and, you know, um, you can go to <laughs> rangetouch.com uh, slash just king things uh, to see our new podcast. It's coming out first episode August 3rd, um, but uh, it's where we are going to be reading every published work by Stephen King. No, I'm sorry. Every published book by Stephen King, mm -hmm. starting with his first book, Carrie. Uh, and we're going to be reading one a month in publication order until we're done. It's going to take like, I think we did the numbers. It's going to take nine years. Mm -hmm. If he stops writing today, if he quit writing books, it would take nine years. So um, it's going to take a while. It's a long-term project, but if you want to be on the ground floor and people love to be on the ground floor, and if you love being on the ground floor, let me tell you about this condo in Florida that I've got. <laughs> um, I think it's going to be very exciting. Uh, the, the months of uh, January and February are amazing. Um, you can buy that little chunk of time. But uh, if you want to be on the ground floor, you want to see that, you want to check it out, uh, that, that's going to be Just King Things. Uh, you can find, about it, find out about it on our Twitter or you can go to rangetouch.com to do it. That has been supported by our Patreons because we hit a certain Patreon number. Thanks so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We're trying to figure out a way in order for you to support us in kind of like a one shot or a one way with maybe like a coffee or something like that. I've had a few people send me messages about that, uh, about like single shot abilities to support us. And we're going to, I'm going to try to figure that out. Uh, maybe Michael can help me with that. But um, I think that's it. We'll be back in, in a month. Uh, you can go to our Discord to talk about this episode or talk about anything else that you want to talk about, I guess. Uh, and if you're on that Discord, you'll find out what book we're reading next, which we'll decide over the next few days. Is there anything I'm, else you want to add, Michael? Uh, no, I think I'm good. So until next time, remember, folks, the social is predicated on its... Windspear Hills. Windspear Hills. <laughs> Until next time, folks, remember the social is predicated upon its exclusions. <laughs> <laughs>